This is David's Book Talk, bringing authors and book lovers together in a unique way since 2009. Visit us at davidsbooktalk.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash davidsbooktalk. But first, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Here's your host, David English. Hello and welcome to David's Book Talk, and we have a very special guest today. His name is Steve Berry, and I love the printing on his new book, this red printing for the Ninth Man, which is such an intriguing title. And uh, the, the more I read this book, the more intrigued I get. Hello, how are you, Steve? Doing great. Thanks for having me back on. Now you're a you're a major success story from a lot of rejections in the beginning, right? Eighty-five rejections, actually. That's uh, that's crazy. I mean, one would think people would think, why wouldn't he give up after? <laughs> you know? Would he never give up? I mean, that's I guess that's that's kind of a rule of life: never give up. Well, I'm sort of. I say all the time, I may not know much about writing, but I'm a world-class expert on rejection, and so I understand it very well. And and I'm and I'm not Superman during the you know. It was a it was a twelve year period from the day I wrote my first word to the day I sold my first word was twelve years and I wrote eight manuscripts during that time five went to New York houses rejected eighty five times now during that twelve years and those eighty five rejections I quit probably two or three times but it only lasted a few days that little voice in my head that tells you to write which every writer has just said get back in there and get back at it and I hung in there until one day. Lady Luck said, "Today's your day," and uh, and I got it. And that was about. I think you were publishing like right after the Da Vinci Code, or close to the Da Vinci Code. Was it near near the time when the Da Vinci Code came out? I was bought to go with Da Vinci because uh, Random House had bought Da Vinci Code in 2002, and. They didn't realize what they had. They just knew they had something kind of new and different, something fresh. The the spy novel had died in the 1990s, and that whole genre had pretty much dried up. And Da Vinci was action, well, you know, was you know action, history, secrets, conspiracies uh, combined together. And today we call that an international suspense thriller. And Random House was looking for other books with action, history, secrets, and conspiracies, and there I was with The Amber Room, and Mark Tavani at Random House bought it. Da Vinci went number one in March of 03. I released in September of 03, and I did very well, too, and Dan gave me a lovely blurb, so I kind of rode, I kind of rode the coattails in. That's wonderful. And you, I mean, I've met you in person, and you, and you are an extremely nice person. So it's it's hard not to root for you. I mean, I, I, root for, I mean, of course, and all these years later, how many books later is that? It's about eighteen in the Cotton Malone series, right? Something right. like twenty-three total right now. Yes. And here we are, twenty-three books later, and you're you're doing well, and you've got a, now you've got a co-author, Grant Blackwood. I should mention him also because he wrote the book too. And here you, you're going strong, <laughs> and it's it's an amazing success story. It's, and now we all think, well, well, now we should never give up when you when you're pursuing something that makes you so happy. And obviously, writing makes you happy. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't do it if it didn't. Now, you surely don't want to do something that you know, makes you miserable. But it, it's just 
just yes, it, it's just uh, if you just hang in there, keep working hard, work on your craft, stay with it, keep writing those manuscripts. One day, one day you're going to catch a break, and for me, I, I did. So all that, all those frustrating things. I, I can only imagine the frustration you were feeling at the time and, and wondering, you know, what, what am I going to do if it never does take off? What am I going to do if it, nothing ever goes through? It, it, it's a, it's, and that's amazing to think about, the, the fact that, that you were able to get through all that. I mean, we have, there's a lot of frustrations in life, especially now. We have a lot more challenges in life than we had back then. But, I mean, you... You're a tribute to everybody out there, people that have have a lot of hardships. <laughs> you know, here we go. And I'm just I'm just I'm just so happy to see you doing so well. Has there been any interest at all in a, in a movie or, or TV series based on? I've been huh? a lot of interest. A lot of interest. I've been optioned. Gosh, I don't know, maybe ten times, or maybe more than that. I lost count. To be honest with you, I've been optioned a lot. But nothing ever comes of it. Uh, it just, you know, they option it, the period runs up, and, and sometimes they renew it. The last last production company renewed it like four times, which was very encouraging. But nothing nothing concrete, no, nothing there. Just uh, a lot of talk and a lot of, uh, you know, a little bit of interest, but nothing. It'd be cool to see it come to life on the screen one day. It really would. What are you, like, if somebody would to meet you on the street, how would you describe yourself? Yeah. Um, I'm just an ordinary guy, to be honest with you. I don't know. There's nothing extraordinary about me in any way. I mean, I'm just a guy who went to school, got a law degree, practiced law, you know, for 30 years, got, you know, wrote books for 12 years with with nothing but rejection, and then for the last 20 years, I've got to write, you know, as a commercial fiction writer. So well, you're guy that you're obviously good at what you do. I've read a lot of your books, and I've enjoyed every one of them. I don't remember one I didn't enjoy. And the, the research that you do and the, the characters that you bring out to life from the page, it, it's just its just very a lot of fun to read and a lot of fun to, to enjoy. And well, that's, the, that's about the best compliment a writer can get is that we write a story and the reader kind of forgets themselves for a little while when they go into the book and they just go into that world and they enjoy that world for a little while and forget the real world. That's really my job. I, I say all the time, I'm not going to win the Nobel Prize for Literature or the National Book Award or, or not even a, 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 an Edgar Award or a Thriller Award. I'm not going to win any of those things. But if I can make people forget their troubles for a little while and enjoy themselves and just kind of you know, have a little fun, and I've done my job. You are. <laughs> that that, and that's great to hear because a lot of there's a there's writers out there who you know are all about themselves. And I, I mean, I've I've talked to a few anyway, but I wouldn't say there's a lot, but there's some. But you seem to be a regular person. Like somebody, if we met them on the street, would say hello, how are you, and and not you know, shy away from people. And, it, and that's that's really you know we we need that today. We need these these regular pe these people you, we can depend on and I mean here you have a book every year and, and people can enjoy them Cotton Malone is a fascinating person a fascinating character and so is Luke Daniels here and Luke, this is the start I, I see of a I hear there's going to be two more Luke Daniels books is that true yes yeah there'll be two more we're working on the second one now it'll come out next summer and the third one will come in the summer of 25 so yeah we're going to do uh, three of these right 
Is it possible there will be more after that, or has that yet been to be determined? That's going to depend on uh, the readers, whether they buy the books and enjoy them and, and keep buying them. And Grand Central says this is something we can viably keep going. So it's kind of up to the readers now. We we, we wrote a – I mean, I really like The Ninth Man. It's a very good story. It's a very good book. It's uh, – it's, it, it, you know, I've done a lot of interviews, and they call this a secondary series. It's really not. It's equal to Cotton Malone in every way. I mean, this book is solid with Cotton Malone. And so uh, I think it's a, a, a great story, and next year's book is equally good. So I think we've got, you know, three good books coming. Well, that's the thing with series. When, when, when readers, have you, when you have different series, you're, I guess sometimes you think, well, I hope they all like all the series equally. And just reading the little bit I've read so far, uh, over 100 pages, more than that, I really like Luke Daniels already. And, I, and I, he's an interesting character, and, and I want to read more about him. Are we going to learn more about him as the three books go along? I mean, are, is, are there little things we don't know yet, if, even from the first book? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, see, see, Luke's been in the Cotton Malone series since the, uh, the Lincoln myth, and he comes about every other book. But you've learned a lot about him there, but you're going to learn a lot more about him here. Yes, he's going to grow and develop. He's, he's getting out on his own now. The great thing about Luke is he's a younger version of Cotton, so he's new. So he makes mistakes. He's impetuous. He's a little bit quick on the draw. He's, there's a lot going on there as he's learning to be a, a intelligence officer. And Cotton has taught him a lot, but Cotton can't be there with him all the time. So Cotton's kind of in his head. And Luke's going to stay around, and you're going to see him develop. He develops in this book. He has to make some very hard decisions along the way that he has to make on his own. But he's, and he's a very confident man, though, also, obviously. I mean, it comes, that comes through right, right from the beginning. He's very confident, very sure of himself. Yes, and sometimes a little too sure. Yeah, exactly, because you don't, you don't always, you can't anticipate everything. No, he gets, a, gets himself in trouble a little bit, but he's learning to be more like Cotton and, and more like how Cotton does his job, as Cotton learned from other agents, too. So, yes, you're going to see Luke uh, mature in these next three, in these books, yes. All right. Do, do you know all the ways he's going to mature yet, or is it, is it still as you – do you find out things as you're writing them? A little of both. I know what I want to do, but there's some uh, development that changes. Like in this book, there's a surprise in this novel. We don't want to say what it is, but there's a surprise that came to me very, very late in the game. And, I, and that was added almost at the very, very end. So it was a, it was something that occurred to me. Said, yeah, this is a here. Here's a better way for Luke to grow. Here's something better for him to do. And it, and it turned out very well. Mm, that's interesting. Can't wait to get to that part. <laughs> that'll be, that'll be. I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here this morning um, reading the book, and I'm thinking, well, what actor would I, would I like to play Luke Daniels? Who do, who do I think he looks like? And, and well, when I first created him years ago, I thought of Matthew McConaughey, but Matthew's too old. He's older now. He's older than Luke. Right. But he, I had, he, it's kind of that look. He's a, he's a country boy, but he's a, a, an army ranger. He's, he's, he's well read, but he's also kind of down home. Calls his mother every Sunday, wherever he is in the world, always calls his mother. His brothers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because his mother named him after the evangelist. Uh, he has a very interesting background, and 
who could play him? There's a lot of young actors out there that could play Lou Daniels. And, and, and this would make a terrific movie, The Ninth Man would. It, it deals with a very fascinating subject, the Kennedy assassination, right. which everyone's intrigued with. And I think it'd make a great movie. Right. I, the name, some of the names that went through my mind were like Ryan Philippe and who, yeah. else, who else was I thinking of? Um, well, yeah, Matt Damon's a little too old for him, I would think. <laughs> Matt Damon's been around for a while, longer than we... Now, Matt Damon could be Cotton Malone, though. He could. All right, so Cotton Malone's, is he in his 40s, 50s? He's uh, pushing 50, right at 50. Yes. Right. And, uh, I kind of, I, I, he used to be 47, but I stopped aging him about 10 books ago. And so, he, in his world, his age has kind of stayed still, and now he just says he's staring down 50. Right. Is every day at the typewriter, well, you, I'm sure you don't use a typewriter, although maybe you do, probably not, but every day that you start writing, is it exciting at first? Or, or are there days where you say, I'm not sure what I want to write today? Well, I wouldn't call it exciting, because it's, it's, a, it's a difficult endeavor, and now, there are days when I sit down where I know exactly what I want to put down and where I'm going to go, and it comes out a little easier than other days. And those are kind of fun. But most days, you, you're pulling it out. It's pulling it out slowly, slowly, slowly. You try to do your 1,000 words a day. Get your 1,000 words in, you've done a good day. And that's about four or five pages. That doesn't sound like a lot, but it is. It doesn't sound to, like a lot. <laughs> no, it doesn't, but you have to make up every word. But when you're... And not only you have to, every word you make up has to go with every word you made up the day before, the day before that. Right, exactly. And I would think sometimes you lose your train of thought. Like if, say, you have something personal happen in your life, you, you might forget where you left off. <laughs> you, but I'm sure you make a lot, I'm sure you make copious notes there. So you know exactly. No, that, happens, that happens sometimes, you know, if I go, if I have two, three days where I can't get to the story because of something, like if I'm traveling. But I, there I kind of make a, I, I kind of, when I stop, I kind of write ahead some notes so I'm ready to go. Um, there are occasions about, in, during the process, uh, it takes about a year to write the novel. So about every three months, two, three months, I stop and I read the whole book from start to finish and do another edit on it. So I go through the book about 50 to 60 times when I'm done. I read it so much that I never really want to read it again. Really? Wow, that's yeah. a lot of times. Well, that's what writing is rewriting. That's what right. it is. You oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and so I go through it so much that I just never want, I, and I don't. I haven't read any of my novels once they're printed because I, I, I've read them so much. I want some other people to enjoy them. Right. It's, and that, that's, oh, that's fascinating to hear the, the, the number of times you do. And you, you, you would think after, the, like you said, after the 50th time, like, okay, I need to move on to something else. <laughs> exactly what you think. And you said, it's time to move on. I mean, please, let me get this done. So but, why, uh, why Grant Blackwood on this one? Why, did you, uh, why do you have a co-author? And I assume he was a friend of yours beforehand. Yes, we've been friends for years. And uh, I, uh, I can't write two books a year like this. There's too much research involved. There's too much has to be done. There's no way I can do two by myself. So when I knew I wanted to do it, I wanted the Luke Daniels books to be a little more action-adventure, a little more Cussler-like. Uh, my books are more, uh, the Cotton Malone books are more Dan Brown-like, but I wanted these to be a little more Cussler-like. And so Grant wrote with Cussler, so, and he 
writes action adventures so well, and he wrote with Clancy as well. Oh, so wow. I called him up and asked him, would he do it? And he said, yes. Yeah. So uh, I, needed, I needed that expertise. It was good to have. I, I can imagine what writing with Tom Clancy was like. Tom Clancy was, I remember I sent him an email one time. I got a one-word response, literally just a one-word response. And I'll never forget that, as long as I live. Uh, authors are, are, it can be a very unusual people, to say the least. You never know. That's why it's so refreshing to go to a to a book signing, because you you never go to a book signing with the author's mean. You just It just never happens anymore. Or, or very, very rarely, if it ever does. You're never going to go to a, you know, the, the, that author's not going to go to another one if they're mean. You got There's no, there's no point in going to a signing if you're going to be rude to people. You might as well just stay home. Right, but you can tell. Sometimes I, I've been to a few where the author, what you could tell, they weren't exactly having fun, or they were trying to get through it. So, and that's kind of painful. But it's still enjoyable to meet the authors. I mean. When is it not fun to meet? I mean, I remember when I met uh, Ed McBain, how wonderful he was, and Robert Parker. I got to meet Robert Parker one time, and they're just—they're it, it, like surreal because they're just—they've done so much for writing and so much for books that it, it's just a pleasure to meet them. And see well, that's, that's, the whole, that's the whole point of the interaction, and and you know when I go and do an event, I tell myself. No one's ever seen me. No one here has ever seen me before. I treat it like I've never been there before in my life, and and that's what you want. You got to treat it so that you're 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 looking. You know, you're you're dealing with the event. You're focused on the event, and your entire attention is on the event. And that's that's what you have to do. Otherwise, the writer shouldn't go. Just stay home. I remember Stephen King said one time that somebody during an event somebody bought him a a packet of blood. And I'm just thinking about that. I'm laughing, but it, it, I mean, I can't imagine what that was like for him to see that. I just a little one, weird. I agree, and particularly in today's world, a little weird you know, to do. But with you know, with his fan and his fan base, they can get a little you know over excited, uh, which is never a bad thing. We like you know, I, you like that kind of thing. You you can work around that. Right. Do people recognize you on the street? When you're walking down the street, do they say, oh, I know, I've seen you on a book somewhere? No, no, no. That's the great thing about being a writer. Nobody really knows who you are in some respects. I, I tell the story all the time. Years ago, when books were in airports and people actually carried around hardcover books to read, uh, we were on tour and we were in an airport and I was sitting right in the waiting for the plane to board. And the man next to me pulls out one, the new book and starts reading it. And then right across from me, two, three feet away, a lady pulls out the book and starts reading it. And my picture in color is on the back of both of those books, and I'm sitting right there, and no one paid me any attention. <laughs> did you let them know who you were? Oh, no, I never do. I never say a word. I just sat there. But I did have my wife get a picture of it. I said, no one's going to believe this. Get a picture of this. And, uh, and it, it just shows you... You know, your anonymity, and I like that. I don't have a problem with that. I was on a plane once, uh, on tour, and the man next, uh, across the aisle from me, read my book the whole flight with a color picture of me right there, and nobody even paid me any attention. That's incredible. You, and you, with the picture on the back, you would think somebody somewhere would recognize you. They just don't really look at it, they don't register it. And that's the great thing about writers. We, we kind of get to keep our identity and our anonymity, and we can move around as we please. And I, I kind of like that. So you just, you just had this international thriller writers 
uh, what, what do they call it? The event that they have every year. Thriller Fest. Oh, Thriller Fest. That's what it's called. I couldn't remember the title of it. You just you just had that. You always have it in New York, is it? Always in New York. I did not make this year's. Oh, you weren't there this year. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you all about it. I didn't realize you weren't there. Not there this year. No. Uh, uh, there's a new group in charge of it. Our, my wife, me, and some other all, all our time kind of ran up, and so we uh, we're we're not in office anymore. We're not on the board or anything. There's a new group running it, so uh, they're they're running it now. But as I I was told by folks who were there, it was great and, and it was very successful. I don't want to give too much away from the book, but uh, why don't you describe a little bit what the book's about without giving too much away? The Ninth Man, the new book. With uh, uh, something from history, uh, very uh, a, a mystery. A mystery we'll never know the answer to, unfortunately, and that's the Kennedy assassination. And it deals with a theory uh, regarding the assassination that I doubt many readers are familiar with. It's not my theory. I got it from a book that was written back in the early 1990s, a book called Mortal Error. Hmm. And that theory is incorporated into the novel. And I'm not going to tell you what the theory is because I, won't, I don't want to give anything away to the readers, but it's fascinating, and I think it will get you thinking. Um, the Kennedy assassination was one of those uh, seminal events in history that we really don't know a lot about because all the investigations into it were pretty much botched. I mean, the Warren Commission report is useless. The, um, the two congressional investigations that came after that, useless. Uh, all of the participants are pretty are dead. There's no one left alive who was there. Uh, we'll never know the answer, but this theory was fascinating and it made for a great thriller, one I wanted to use with Cotton Malone for years, but it worked really well here with uh, Luke Daniels. So I assume you did a lot of research with... with we did. Quite a bit of research in this thing and, and did a lot of study with it. And... I think the reader's going to be fascinated, going, I really never knew that. And, well, it, it, it's interesting. It an the theory answers a lot of unanswered questions uh, and things. I'll, I'll give you one example of something that doesn't give anything away in the novel that I doubt many readers know about. On the night before the assassination, four of the eight agents who would the next day be protecting the president in the motorcade went out in Fort Worth and basically got drunk. Uh, and so they drank, they were intoxicated, they were hung over the next morning, and they went to work. Hmm. Now, the Warren Commission dealt with that in two sentences, basically saying, we're aware of that, but we find no evidence that it had anything to do with the performance of the agents. Now, here's the thing. Of those eight agents who were there, on the ground, they only interviewed two of them. So they never even got the other six. They don't even know what the other six had to say. That's very yet, interesting. They concluded there was no problem whatsoever. Now, I don't drink. I'm not a, big, a drinker, so I've never been hungover. But I guess readers who have been hungover after drinking much at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning and getting up at 7 o'clock the next morning and having to go in the hot you know, sun and protect the President of the United States, you would think there might be a little bit of an effect there. Hmm. Absolutely. But that's never, that's never talked about. Well, no, no one ever speaks of it. 
Here's another fact that does not give anything away in the novel at all. When Kennedy was killed in Texas, it was not a federal crime to kill the president. That came many years, that came after the assassination. What? No, it was not a federal crime to kill the president in 1963. It is today, but not, not then. So that was a Texas murder. What happened there in Dealey Plaza was a Texas murder under the authority of the Texas authorities. But the Secret Service would not allow the medical examiner to, to, to look at the body, to study the body, to autopsy the body. They put the body in a bag at gunpoint, took the body from the airport, put it on the plane, and took it back to D.C. If Oswald had not been killed and it stood trial, he, he might have been acquitted because you have no evidence. You've got a chain of custody problem. You've got all kinds of issues going on here in order to prove the case. Well, uh, so, you make it sound like somebody was trying to hush the whole thing up somewhere. That there was... a good, there's a good question. Why did the Secret Service do that? Why? They clearly did it. That's not made up. That's a fact. The question is why. The autopsy itself that was conducted at Bethesda was a horrible, horribly done, poorly put together, lots more questions unanswered than answered. Strangely, today a lot of the photographs and some of the records of that autopsy are gone. They don't exist anymore. So there's a lot of very interesting things that don't make a lot of sense until you look at this from another angle. And, and this isn't a theory, by the way, that LBJ killed Kennedy or Lady Bird killed Kennedy or, or, or all this crazy stuff. It's a very well-researched, put-together theory by a man who spent a lot of time doing it. And, it, and it's fascinating, and I think the reader's going to find it very interesting. Is your wife as interested in history as you are? Are you guys equally as... Not as much, no, but she loves to read my books because she likes to learn about the history, so she, she likes it. She's not a history buff, though, but she enjoys it the way it's presented in the novel. Right. And that's what I do with the novels. I, I incorporate history in there so you'll have fun with it. Right. And it's nice when the authors care about the, uh, care about the readers. You have to care about the readers or you won't have any readers. I mean, that's, that's the way I look at it. I mean, you have to care at some point. I mean, But do you write? Do you write any of your books the way you you would read? I mean, in other words, do you write a book that you would read? Yes, absolutely. I say all the time, writing what you know is very bad advice. Never write what you know. Always write what you love. Hmm. I was a lawyer. I knew that, but I loved action, history, secrets, conspiracies. So yes, I write every one of my books the the way I would want to read a book. Yes. Well, how did you go from being a lawyer to a writer? I mean, what did you suddenly wake up one day and say, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. I want to write books. No, work like that. Uh, I had a little voice in my head all during the 80s telling me to write. And I thought it was, well, you know, crazy. What is this thing? I now know that every writer has a little voice in their head telling them to write. It's a common occurrence. You're born with the little voice in your head. But you're not born knowing how to write. you got to learn the craft. I wasted the 80s. I didn't do anything. I didn't write my first word to 1990 when I was 35 years old. So, you know, I wasted a good probably seven, eight, nine years at least, maybe, you know, of not doing what I should have done. But as I said, remember, it took.
another 12 years after that before I got published. And then I did eight books still as a lawyer, and then it came to a point where I had to choose. I, it, was, it was too much time. I could not do both. And, and since I practiced law for 30 years, I'd done it. It was great, but it was time to be over. I chose to be a writer. That's a long time to practice law, 30 years. 30 years, yeah. It was, uh, and it's a lot, I assume it's a lot different now than it was back when you were doing it. It's all electronic now. Everything's very different now than it used to be. Yeah, everything's it's very, very different than the way I was. Right. Do you, do you miss the law at all, being a lawyer? I do not. No, I don't really miss it. I, I did it. I got it. I, it's great, but uh, not, uh, no, I wouldn't want to go back and, uh, and practice law again. I think I've, I, I, I got it out of my system. When you, when you sat down to write The Ninth Man, and you, you're—I I don't know. Do you get? Do you, are you in the same room when you write with Grant, or is it over the phone, or how do you do that? By the way. Well, no, he lives in Colorado, and okay. I live here. So Grant wrote the first draft of the novel, and I told him just—we—we, I—it was my idea. I had the idea for the book. I put together a rough outline. Uh, I told him that we're not, you're not bound by that, though. You, you, you use your imagination to do what you have to do. I'm just giving you my thoughts. He wrote the first draft, and, and we knew it was going to be uh, a little bit challenging because he doesn't know Luke Daniels like I do, and he doesn't write like I do. He doesn't know my voice yet. Right. He'll get it, but he didn't know it at that point. So I said, just write it. Write it however you write it. And then he sent it to me, and then I rewrote it. I rewrote the book from start to finish, hmm. and I put my voice, and I added in the Luke stuff, and then he went back through it, and then I went back, went back and forth. So that's how it worked. We never were together at all. We did everything through text and email, mm-hmm. occasionally a phone call, but he's a pro. He doesn't need me to tell him how to do things. He knows what to do. And that's, and, the, th- and that's the thing with writers. You don't want to step on anybody else's toes either. You want to... No, and, and, but, but he, he's also a pro, and he understands this is my series, my audience, and my book. So, you know, it's not a democracy, though it is. I listen to everything he has to say, but the final call is mine. Do you, do you ever, have you ever come across, and I'm, I'm, I'm not asking you to name any names, have you ever come across authors who are, who are very competitive with each other? Yes, of course, absolutely. There are people that way, that, and, and jealousy. And, uh, and things, yes, it does happen. It's not as prevalent in the thriller business, thank goodness, but it, it, it's occasional. Most of the thriller writers that I've come in contact with are very generous, great people. What's interesting is I have Alexa, and I was asking Alexa this morning about you just so I could find out some extra details, hoping she'd know something that I didn't know about you. <laughs> and it's funny because when you ask Alexa about you, she, she says that you're, you've written mystery books. Which I, which I, makes me laugh because I don't, I don't consider your books mysteries. I, I consider them more thrillers and adventure novels. Yeah, a mystery is about what happened. A thriller is about what's going to happen. That's the difference between the two. Oh, that's They're interesting. They're two different genres, and I don't write mysteries. No, I write thrillers. So, Alexis, this is why we don't trust electronic voices in boxes. I was, I was shocked. I'm like, well, that's, I don't think you know who Steve Berry is. I don't think you've ever read Steve Berry. <laughs> and it, it was kind of interesting. To, it, you don't expect it So when it, when it comes up. and it's. But, you know, anyway, you, 
<laughs> so somebody will have to correct that Amazon. Hopefully somebody from Amazon is listening right now. And they can get that corrected. But I, yeah, I like to think of your books as adventure novels too. I, I, I love to think of in, that I'm, I'm going to go through an adventure when I read your books. Is that fair? Oh, definitely, definitely. I want you to have that as well, yeah. Um, action adventure is there, absolutely. But mine are mainly you know, action, history, secrets, conspiracies, international settings. I did five American books, but the, you know, I did uh, you know, uh, 13 you know, international books. With, so uh, international is where I am now. I, I, I probably won't do another American book for a while, but we did do five of those. So, yes, there's definitely action adventure, and the whole book is action adventure. Yeah. I should mention that you're being published by Grand Central now. You haven't always been published by Grand Central. No, I did 13 books with Random House and seven with Macmillan, and now I'm doing six with Grand Central. Well, thank God, because when you were with Random House, it was very difficult to get an interview with you. I have very, I have a lot of trouble with Random House. Just except that it's such a big company that it's hard to pin anybody down there. It's very difficult to to find the right person that you need to talk to. With well, it's, it's sometimes with the publicist at publishing houses, they're sort of like a filter and they guard through it. But I have a website with a contact form there, and most people who want me can go straight there and get right to me. All right. So have you, do you think you've realized your dream with writing? I mean, are there st or is there still more that you dream of, of getting to? I mean, I, obviously more readers all the time. You always want more readers. But is there something that you haven't done that you, that you can't wait to do? achieved and probably never will achieve is I never made it to number one on the New York Times. I made it to number two. Really? Oh, yeah, but I never made it to, there were at one time 35 slots on the list. Now there's 15, but I've been in every slot multiple times. Several hundred times I've been on the New York Times list. But, Why do you think um, you never made it to number one? Well, just timing. Just timing and the right time. I come up short a little bit. You know, it's just what book's out that week that's bigger than me? It's just timing. Today, being number one of the times this is, man, it's hard. It's really, really, really hard. Because you've got, you know, so many of the lightning books, what we call the lightning strike books, that come out of nowhere and just start going organic and just selling books and books and books and books. You know, Crawdaddy's was that kind of book. It went on for years. Oh, what a book that is, though. That is an amazing book. And that, it was on the times list for several years. And there yeah, and it makes lightning. you... It makes you wonder what it, what is it about that book that so many people connected with? It just you have to study it to see because all the lightning books are different. They're very very different. There's one right there on there now by what um, her name is Rebecca called the Fourth Wing, I believe the name of the book is. And there, there's a new lightning strike right there where it's just caught on. And it was number one last week, and it's just been hanging around, hanging around, getting bigger and bigger and bigger every week. And there's always one or two of those. And so being number one on the Times list today, I've kind of given up on that. I don't. I, I realize that's not going to happen. So, uh, you know, I don't get, you know, you know, worked up over it. I just keep moving forward. My main goal is to keep doing it. I just want to keep doing it. Right. And that makes you, and that, I, I don't, I don't know if saying makes you happy is, is the right way to put it, but it, it, it brings happiness to your life. I like, I like, I like putting it that way, but, but obviously writing is something. This is 
is a job for me too. So this is how I make my living. So this is how I pay the bills. So you know, I want to keep bringing a paycheck in so I can you know you know do the job. It's there's a fun element to it, but there's also a work element because I'm a commercial fiction writer and I have to produce a product for the house to publish, and you know, and that's how I get paid and that's how I eat. Right. Well, what do you do for fun? I mean, when you're not writing, you must have hobbies you must have things that excite you other than writing there has to be i mean everybody's got a second they got to have something in, in in the wings that they enjoy doing too i do lots of things i love to play golf and I enjoy that very much we travel we travel a lot seeing new places and things so yeah writing is not an obsession for me it's it's a discipline and it's a job but not an obsession and there you have to have time for other things but are you constantly thinking about new stories? Are you constantly getting bombarded with ideas? Yes, yes, and thank goodness, because they keep coming. You want them to keep coming. You don't want those to dry up, because... Well, how, do you, how can you tell the difference between an idea that's going to be solid and one that's just an idea that's not going to lead anywhere? Well, experience teaches you that. You know, there are times when I get an idea, I say, that's, that sounds pretty good, and then it starts going together, and then, nah, nah, it's not going to work. You've got to be able to take that concept and run it through a, a, a very complex story over 400 pages that makes going to make some sense. And, and, and experience teaches you what's, uh, what works and what doesn't. You just learn from, from practice and doing it over and over again. What's intriguing about Cotton Malone and also about, uh, already about Luke Daniels is uh, there's a lot of death in these books. There's a lot of bad people that get killed. How, do, how does Cotton Malone and how does Luke Daniels deal with that? I mean, is that something that they think about or, or are they to the point where they don't even think about that? Well, I'm careful about killing in the books. I only have death when it's absolutely necessary and required. Usually that also involves the bad guy kind of getting, you know, getting what's due to the bad, to the, to the antagonist. But I don't have a lot of killing in the novels. I'm a little more careful with that because killing people is a serious matter. Now, there's some killing in this book, but Luke reflects on how difficult that is and how, you know, it's not easy. Even though it's in the heat of battle, even though it's kill or be killed, it's still not something that's easy for him. And it's never been easy for Cotton. So, you know, these are thrillers. There's going to be some death and destruction, but I'm careful about that. And I think that's one reason why I have a large female readership. I, have a, I mean, my readership's about half and half. Mm. And I think that's because I don't have a lot of violence and I don't have a lot of killing. Right. I just, I think about that as I'm reading the books and there are deaths and I'm thinking, well, how would that affect somebody? And one of the reasons I think about that is because they're dealing with that on that show, Grantchester, now. I don't know if you've seen that show on PBS, Grantchester. I've not seen it. Where he, the main character, the, the, the hero of the series, has accidentally killed somebody, and they're dealing with that this season. And it, it scares you. You think to yourself, how would I deal with that if I accidentally killed somebody? How, how would that affect me? And yeah, and I've talked to people, uh, some sheriff's deputies and uh, some military folks who have actually killed people. And they say the same thing. They say, I had to do it. I didn't have a choice. But uh, it's still something I think about. It's still in my head. And so I reflect that in there. Cotton Malone tells Luke Daniels, killing people ain't easy. And, and 
and he remembers that. Luke remembers that when he's got to pull the trigger in this book. But it ain't easy. It's got to be done, but it ain't easy. And don't ever get used to it. Did you tell me how old Luke Daniels is at the start of this book? I, I can't remember if you said that. Mid-30s, uh, early 30s. Early, early 30s. So you, you, we have an, uh, so we know how. A lot of times, uh, authors don't always want to tell you how old their author, their characters are because they're <laughs> they're afraid they're going to age too quickly, I guess, or something. It, it's tell you that, but I'm not going to age him. He's always going to be that age. Oh really? Is he going to be like a Nancy Drew kind of character? All right, because I learned that lesson from uh, Clive Cussler. He taught me that years ago. You know, he, he just quit aging Dirk Pitt. He just said, uh, "No, Dirk Pitt's like been around for 50 years." And, but he's the same age he's always been. And he's got two grown children now. Where do they come from? But he's never aged. You know, in reality, Dirk Pitt would be about 90 years old now. You know, but he's not in the story. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. We we lost Clive Custler a number of years ago. I guess it's been now. It has been a while. What a what a terrific... What kind of authors do you read when you're, when you're reading? Have you, do you ever get time to read or is, does that conflict with your writing reading too much i have to read so much non-fiction material because i use three to four hundred sources with every novel there's not a lot of time to read a novel but i do read a few i read jim rollins i'll read Custler occasionally uh particularly the new the when uh, the dirt pit Custler. i'll read that um you know i'll pick up a, 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 I do about 20 books a year for blurbs where I blurb other writers so I have to read those so those are something that I go through as well reading for a blurb though is a little different than reading for fun because you're, you're paying attention to a whole bunch of other things while you're reading it And but you know there's not a lot of time just sit back and say let me just lay back here and have some fun reading novel I mean I used to do that a lot but it's hard to do that now do you, who reads more you or your wife oh she does Oh, gosh, yeah. My wife runs a publishing house. She's, uh, oh, I didn't know that. She owns two, uh, with her two partners, they own uh, Evil Eye uh, Publishing, which Blue Box Press, and they publish in the romance genre. And she's had, over the last two years, three number one bestsellers in the country. They've had three of the number one bestsellers in the country. So she's a... She, she reads about 25 or 30 books a year, and she edits those books. She is the editor of all of them. Now, I don't remember which book I met her with when you came to, when you came to Bryn Mawr, I think it was, when I met you. Was it Bryn Mawr that I met you, or was it Chester County? I can't remember which one. I... That's a good question. It may have been Chester. Chester County is a long time ago. Yeah, I think it was Chester County, but I just remember she made quite an impact on, on a number of people there just because she's such a people person. You're both people. <laughs> and she's, definitely, uh, she's definitely a people person. She's, uh, she, and when she comes to an event, she's part of the event. She's just not sitting there. She's, she's part of the event. She's, she's a force of nature is what she is <laughs> just from i just remember that all those years ago just and i think she had some did she have something to do with jewelry at some point or something no, that um, wasn't her in jewelry she wears jewelry she loves jewelry that she does but i'm she, trying to uh, remember I, I some reason i don't know we were talking about her interest and i i don't know i must have something mixed up with somebody else she's but, a editor on all the manuscripts too so and she is a relentless editor she goes through it and really really so she me out. 
she can say to you, oh, get rid of that part. It's boring. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example of one of her comments. In one of the manuscripts, she told me to go to the end and read her last comment first. So I went to the end and read it, and she said, I can't believe I just wasted 400 pages of my life. I mean, that's pretty tough. <laughs> that is pretty tough. She did not like the ending of the novel. She Does thought it, it was a poor, poor ending, and she was right, and I rewrote it. Did it bother you at first, her saying that? We had a very spirited discussion on that subject. Yes, we did. And uh, we we don't ever fight. We never really fight or have any crosswords for each other. The only crosswords we've ever had is over our manuscript. But unfortunately for me, about 95% of the time, she's right. That's interesting. Huh. And is he the only one that gets to, I mean, the only one in your family. I'm not talking about the publishing house. I'm sure they get reader of the novel and then it goes to my agent and editor after she's read it and I make her changes first because she's usually dead on so by the time they get it it's pretty clean do you does your editor do, do you have total say in what the book's going to be called I know a lot of publishers nowadays are they have they know what titles are going to sell sometimes and I, I, I know that sometimes they insist that a title won't work. Or Do they ever say that to you? Yeah, this occasionally we deal with it. The, the contract says we have to have a mutually agreeable title, but no publishing house is going to make you title a book you don't want to title it. Uh, I will say anytime any suggestions have been made, they're excellent, and I, I can't remember when I've not gone with them. So they, uh, they, you know, I think about the title a lot, and, you know, when they come in and they come up with a better word, I'm the first one to say, let's go. That's great. Let's do that. So I'm, I'm pretty authoritarian with what I do because I'm in charge, but I'm also open to anybody's thoughts or ideas. I want to I want to hear them. I want to see it because if, if, if that's a better way to go, I'm with it. Yeah, I, I would think that's a better way to go, to do that, to be open even if, you know, because maybe... You, there's always the possibility somebody could be right, other well, than you. you they are, by the way. So uh, that's why I listen to them very much. So I, I, I don't mind criticism. Criticism doesn't bother me. What would you, what did your parents say when you first started writing? Were they encouraging? Uh, they didn't know I wrote. They only knew I was writing when I sold the first book 12 years later. I, I Really, no one knew I wrote other than my staff at the office and my wife at the time uh, was the only people who knew I wrote because I went to the office every day about 6.30 in the morning and I wrote from 6.30 to 9. So I wrote alone. There was nobody there. Hmm. And so I never told anybody. When I sold my first book and it was published in 2003, everybody in the town where we live was shocked because nobody knew. And so they were shocked too. My mother's reaction was, don't quit your day job. Pretty much don't quit your day job. She didn't really consider me a writer till about 10 books later. Really? Yeah, she wanted me to be a lawyer. Be a lawyer, pay the bills, do what you're supposed to. Don't, don't do that over there. But then as it grew and grew and grew, she began to see, well, that's the way to go. Yeah, and, and obviously it made you happy, so that's got to mean something to her, obviously, <laughs> to see you happy and doing what you want to do. And the historical aspect. I mean, you're a big history person, so that's well, that important. Was my, my father was the history guy. He loved history. So 
he would bring home history books, lots of history books. And I re that's where I got the love of, of it, reading those history books. If you could meet one author, of all the authors that you've read that you've loved, and if you could meet one right now, who would it be? James Michener. Now there's an interesting choice. He was my favorite. He's my favorite. I have a first, I have a complete collection of Michener uh, on the shelves here in my office that I've collected for the last 50 years. And he was great. I mean, I loved, I loved all of his books. I never got to meet him. He died in 1998, I think. Uh, and 97 or 98, uh, I never got to meet him. So uh, it would have been really cool to, 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 to talk with him. You've read all of his books? Everyone, everyone. What an interesting choice. I would never have thought of that. People people would say, you know, you, you would read somebody of your own genre, but, you know, writers don't do that. They read whatever they like. The love of incorporating history into it, but he wrote historical fiction, absolute history. Did you ever meet him? Never got to meet him. Never got to saw. Never saw him at all. No. This was during my twelve years of rejection. I never got to see him. He was pretty. Uh, he was in his late nineties by then. He died at age ninety nine, I think. Uh, and he was uh, just somebody I just never got to see. The second choice would be Walt Disney. I would love to have met and talk with Walt Disney. Interesting. I don't, I'm not so sure he'd be happy with how his company's going now. <laughs> Some of the things that they're coming out with, I, I would think would be a little upsetting to him, maybe. I don't know. Walt, Walt ran a different company, totally different. And unfortunately, he was not the best businessman in the world. He was, a, he was an idea guy. Roy was the businessman and, uh, and the brother. So... Uh, the company is very different today than it was then, extremely different. Yeah. And, and, and just the way it's made up, it's the largest entertainment conglomerate in the world now. It was not in Walt's day. I would think your books would make a, a good streaming service series. I agree with you 100%. I think they would make great, like an eight-part series, ten-part series. You could then take the whole book and play it out and do it, absolutely. And I would love that. I'd actually prefer that over a major motion picture, but yeah, cause most I don't have a... Yeah, most pictures go way too fast, and, and you, you don't get the whole story. You only get parts of the story. You... It condensed down into an hour and a half or two hours. It's got to be condensed down, where if you could do ten hours now, wow. They did a Michener miniseries years ago, a Centennial, which is the best miniseries I've ever seen in my life. It was like 20 hours, wasn't it? hours long yeah and they did the oh. whole book they did it right and it was wonderful it was like watching the book is what you were doing there. yeah that was i remember when that was on great I think, show i think it was great on nbc TV. that was back when nbc was doing miniseries and doing yeah they were doing like james clavell's books i remember they they did uh, the Thornbirds too at one point no that was abc that did the Thornbirds. i think but anyway yeah the miniseries was it was a very interesting way of doing it, doing it over different nights, so you could you could look forward to the next night, too. See, today, they don't do that because you have streaming. So everything goes to streaming because they want you to buy it separately. So you won't see a 20-hour miniseries on network television anymore. It's not something you... Are they doing any, any TV promos for you, for your books? No, no TV commercials here. They're not really that... They're, they're not that in selling books they're, they're good to have all publicity is good to have but it's not really a good way to spend money on marketing for selling books today
maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, not today. The only one you see, it seems like you see, is like James Patterson. Every once in a while you'll see him on TV promoting he does. it. But he does his own and puts them out there. And they're good to have, but you also have to do the additional marketing, uh, the targeted marketing that you do uh, you know, to thriller readers and things like that. Marketing books today is an extremely complex and difficult endeavor. Right. You're a very intelligent man. Just from talking to you, I can tell how intelligent you are. Have you always been this intelligent? Well, I say I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'll outwork you any day of the week. So <laughs> uh, you got to give me, you know, I, I can outwork you. Uh, I may not be the quickest right off, but uh, give me time and let me work it out, and I, I can I can go one-on-one with you. I think if we, if we could just get the youth of America to be as in, as as work worthy as we are, as our generation was, you know, that, I mean, when I started working, you said you worked an eight-hour day. That was what you did. You didn't have a choice. And nowadays, with, with phones and cell phones and so many distractions, you know, kids are not as as willing to work anymore. They're they're too distracted today. Well, everyone wants it fast. They want it fast. I mean. The, the books on Amazon, the self-published books on Amazon is a good example. They just they, they slot something down, they put it out there, I want to sell it, I want that. Well, it may not be ready to sell. It may not be correct to sell. It may need work. It may need work, but it doesn't matter. I just want to get it out there. I want to go. And do your, do that, your children read your books? Uh, my uh, oldest daughter does, but she's the only one. The other three do not. They uh, Their interest in reading lies in other genres. Oh, interesting. So they've never even read your books? I think uh, my youngest daughter read one. Uh, youngest son, were, you know, who's my stepson, that's Elizabeth's son. Uh, I think he read one. Um, they just don't, their their interest is not, that's not their interest. My, my youngest daughter loves romance. She likes the romance genre. My, uh, Eli loves fantasy. He's big into fantasy. They have the different interests, and that's fine. You need to read what you love. At least you know with romance, it's going to have a happy ending. <laughs> Got to have the happily ever after. Very much so. But there's some books that, I don't know, in the thriller genre, sometimes not having a happy ending makes the book more realistic sometimes because life doesn't always have a happy ending. Well, thriller is a different rule. You don't have to have that in the thriller business, no. But in the romance business, the reason why the reader's reading it is to have a happily ever after. So you've got to always have that. It's just the kiss of death not to have that. In the thriller business now, you can end your book pretty much however you want to. Hmm. Your, your next cotton one is going to be called The Atlas Maneuver. Is that correct, I'm, what I'm seeing? That is, that is correct. It comes out in February, and it deals with Bitcoin, which is fascinating to me. Oh, and Bitcoin. Oh, that ought to be interesting. And a treasure from World War II. It's very interesting. Um comes out February 20th of next year. Right around and, Valentine's Day. It's a good Valentine's Day gift. And then the next Luke Daniels will be next summer. It's a book called Red Star Falling, and it deals with Russia and something very interesting, The Lost Library of Ivan the Terrible. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm amazed you can even tell me the title. Usually that far in advance, the, the authors won't tell me the title of the next book. They'll keep it a secret. Now we already have a title and approved, so uh, we're getting ready to start the third book in a, another few couple months. There, we'll get work on the third. Red Star Falling. I like that title. That's a, that's a, an intriguing title. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting story. 
I've been fascinated by the library of Ivan the Terrible, which disappeared in the 15th century, uh, 16th century, uh, disappeared, uh, and I've always wanted to incorporate a novel, and we got a chance to do it here. What, when you go to research things, you say, I think you said you're for over almost 400 different research places. Yes. That's incredible. That's a Three lot. 400 for every novel, yes, about that. Mostly our primary sources, uh, you know, because I, I, primary sources are great, and I go through it. Now, I don't read three to 400 books, but I do read large chunks of three to 400 books. That's a lot of reading. I, you must get you must get exhausted sometimes. <laughs> it is a lot. Of, it's a lot, and uh, you know I say all the time I'm not an expert on anything. I'm just a guy that reads three to four hundred books on the same subject. And if you do that, you're going to discover how much they conflict with one another. Right. And they do, and so I have to make some educated guesses along the way. Interesting, and make sure that you have the facts right, because I'm sure your readers will write in and tell you if, if you don't get the facts correct. That's why I put the writer's note in the back of the book to tell you what I made up and what I didn't and explain some of that stuff. I try to make, because I want the reader to know exactly what's true and what's not. Do you ever see yourself retiring and just saying, you know, I want to just relax for the rest of my life? Do you ever see yourself doing that? I won't say never, but it's, it's intriguing. I would love to write a book every two years. That would be kind of fun. But the problem is you can't keep your audience that way. Every two years would be kind of fun. Uh, that way I wouldn't, I wouldn't be pushed so hard. You know, doing a book a year takes a lot out of you. And I've done it now for 20 years. This is my 20th year. And so it's, uh, you know, I'd love to go to a book every two years. That'd be a lot better, yeah. Yeah, give you give you a chance to relax a little bit. Just enjoy enjoy your life more. Not that you. It also give me a chance not to think about books all the time. Do you take vacations during the year? Do you have like weeks of the year you say I'm just not going to write these two weeks, or I'm not going to write this week, or do do you yeah. do that? Yes, we have one trip a year we take that's fun. There's no work involved. It's just fun. And then usually between Christmas and New Year's, I don't do very much. Publishing's closed during that time, and everything's shut down, and that's kind of a downtime. Right. So, yeah, those are a couple of times a year where I, I do nothing. Yes. you gotta have you got to have time for yourself, or you just become... If you just work all the time, and, you know, it, it, that's exhausting. Especially it is. It is, and my brain's a little... I won't fool you, my brain's a little tired. It would, And as I said, it would be nice to go back and do a book every two years. But, you know, as I said, this is a job, and so I can't get paid every two years. So, you know, i got to keep making money so I can live. So is, is the Atlas Maneuver finished already? It's done, submitted, and ready to go, yes. But not, up, not Red Star Falling yet? No, no, that one's still in production. We're still writing it, but uh, the Atlas Maneuver's up for pre-order now on all the e-sites, so you can go on and pre-order it. That's terrific. You're you're such a busy man. <laughs> what do you think somebody? What do you think people are going to like the most about the ninth ninth man? What do you think is going to get them? For me, it's just the 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 action and where it's going to lead to next, and and how it's going to tie into the the Kennedy assassination. I can't wait to get to that part. I haven't gotten to that part yet. But what do you think people are going to like most about it? I think you're going to have a lot of fun with a story that you're going to get into. And along the way, you're going to learn something that will intrigue you, and maybe enough that you want to go learn some more about it, since it's real. So there's 
There's that element of entertainment and there's that element of information. It's mixed very well in that novel. And what's interesting is when you read it, you're wondering, oh my God, I'm not even sure Luke's going to make it to the next page. He's got no, a lot of dangerous situations, including a crocodile. <laughs> or is it an alligator? There's a difference, isn't there? Uh, obviously, he makes it because he's got to do two more books, but we do try to keep him in peril a lot. Right, which is fine, because you wonder, how is he, going, how is he ever going to get out? And the one scene where it almost becomes a waterboarding scene is, is an interesting scene to, to, to read. You're thinking, how in the world is he ever going to get out of this scene? That's one thing Grant's very good at. He's good at, 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 at keeping that moving along and with good action adventure. That's, he's very, very good at that. Do you have any military background at all? I do not, but he does. So he brings that to the table, too. Oh, interesting. So all, all three books are going to be co-written with him? Yes, yes. And then will, will you do more with him, do you think, after the Luke? I hope so. It depends on if people buy him. They've got to buy them, and you know, they've got to be popular. And Grand Central says we want to keep going with it. So are you doing? Are you doing any kind of book events? Any store events? Any virtual we events? Did, uh, we did uh, one at Poison Pen, which is uh, done. We did that virtual online, so you can go to the Poison Pen website and find it and watch that event. That they, they keep it up on their website. And then we did a couple of local events in Orlando, Florida. That's about all. It's summertime. Uh, doing events in the middle of summer is really, really hard. Right. So we opted not to do a lot of that. So you're in Florida right now? I am, yes. I live in Orlando. Th does it get really, really humid down there? Very humid down there, yes. But I've lived in the south all my life, so I'm very used to it. You know, you don't, you know it doesn't bother you as much as... as no, not at all. In fact, I, I actually enjoy it. it Loosens your bones up, gets your muscles good, you feel good. <laughs> That's right. And you, and sweating, sweating is actually pretty good for you. I mean, when you when you when you do work and you sweat it out and you relax after it, there's something very satisfying about that. Yeah, and that's the way it is here. And I'm used to it. That's where I grew up. I I, I, I did not grow up in cold and snow and ice. That's would be very foreign to me. Right. Well, this has been a very enjoyable hour with you, Steve Barry. I, as always, you're a very interesting man. You must say hello to your wife to me again. I, I haven't seen her in years, so. Well, I, I will do that, and I appreciate you having me on, and maybe next year I'll come back and talk to you about the Atlas. That would be great. And the new book, again, is called The Ninth Man with Steve Barry and Grant Blackwood uh, from Grant Central. It's out in all your bookstores, and it's online everywhere. And I'm sure, is there an audio version of it? Audio version, e-version, uh, download. It's in all formats. Yeah, no problem. Wow. And if they want to know more about me that or the Ninth Man, they can go to steveberry.org. Everything's there. And don't listen to Alexa because you're not a mystery. <laughs> yes. This has been David's Book Talk, and we'll talk to you next time. You have just enjoyed the podcast of David's Book Talk, brought to you by your host, book lover, David English. Please visit us at davidsbooktalk.com, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast. We want to hear from you, and we don't want you to miss our upcoming shows with top authors like Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, Lisa Scottolini, Jackie Collins, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly, Sue Grafton, Steve Martini, Dale Brown, David Baldacci.